0: Hello and welcome back to Weimar Fashion Made in Germany. Today we're going to talk about the Neue Frau, Flaneur, her role as a fashion journalist, and how she became the voice of generations of German women from all different classes. We're also going to be looking at the preeminent fashion magazine at the time, Die Dame. And if you like theory, well, you're definitely in for a treat because there's going to be a good amount of sprinkling of some feminist and Marxist theory into our story. So let's get to it. As we reviewed from last week, the Neue Frau was a young, emancipated, ambitious, and really essential to the story of fashion in 20s Weimar era Berlin. She could be a shop girl working at Hermann Gazon or Vatheim's department store, or Pinko's Schuh- Schuhpalast in the 1914 silent-era confections we discussed last week. She could be Babylon Barlin's Charlotte Ritter, full-time a full-time undercover investigator and occasional sex worker. She was also the consumer and the consumed of of Weimar's mass-oriented consumerism, which was coming into fruition. Going into the department stores gave her a sense of freedom and agency. It was a place where her material aspirations were expressed in glittering tableaus and store displays. But we really can't talk about her that much without revisiting the concept of the flaneur from the 19th century. So I know I've thrown this around in past episodes, but what is what was the flaneur? So to the social theorist and film critic closely associated with the Frankfurt School, who we talked about last week, Siegfried Kracauer, the flaneur was a quote aimless wanderer who sought to conceal the gaping void around him and within him with his casual observations and impressions. In essence, he is a 19th century literary archetype that you may have read about, who was really immersed in the theater of life and the city around him. He was birthed out of Baudelaire's essays, Balzac's novels, and... Marx's theory of commodity fetishism. So this is where we get to it, because commodity fetishism is the perception of certain relationships not as connections with other people, but social relationships with things or material objects. To break it down even further, a fetish is an object of desire. Karl Marx professed that commodities can also be fetishes desire has been redirected into the commodity, giving it a certain power over the labor used to make that material object. Now, I'm mentioning all of this because it is important to understand this con- this concept in the story of fashion, because I think going to a department store, and at the time, 20s, 20s Weimar Air Berlin, and seeing the fact that these... Apparel pieces, accessories, dresses, and what have you had an almost unparalleled power, and we're later going to see that and how commodity fetishism is linked to this concept. Now, the flaneur of the 19th century was about to wane and, and eventually die out in the 20th century. And in Janet Ward's Weimar Surfaces Urban Visual Culture in the 1920s, she recasts the flaneur completely by saying, now have a close listen, this is, this is a bit heavy, quote, To denote this shift, Benjamin quotes Victor Fornell's Hausmanization era remark on the degradation of the Parisian flaneur into the Badad the de-individualized gawker or gaper, who wholly of the masses and who is by implication predicated on recasting the consumer from male to female. So the housemanization, all of that is not really essential right now. We're going to talk about that next week. But the fact that she recasts or the consumer has been recasted from male to female is critical to us and to today in this episode. Now, while there was much debate in feminist theory that a female version of the flanner can't really exist because the subject of the male gaze and women would have had the leisure and wane, Anna Friedberg claims that the rise of the department store and the advance of cinema gave middle class women the opportunity, even if it's limited, to connect to consumerism and to roam the cities on their own. These department stores and movie theaters gave the female flaneur or flaneuse the, quote, spatial and temporal mobility, the imaginary flannery, she calls it. And sorry, my, te- my French is terrible. Now, connecting this to literature of the time, if we look at a passage from Imgad Coyne's Gigli, Gis- 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 One of Us, in which in this, in this part of the story, Frau Kron is she's the mother of the protagonist, Jigli. And we see that this idea of the spatial mobility come to life, not physically, but we see this element of her being a part of this mass consumption, even if it's through the lens of a magazine. So in the quote, she says, she immerses herself in the advertising supplement in search of consolation. Stock clearance sale, Uding's shoes, our display windows say it all. Bush's carpets, final three days. High quality goods, Frau Kron reads. She's stocky and shapeless. The skin on her arms and breasts is honorably slack and tired. She's gray and unattractive and has no desire to be otherwise. Her dark blue woolen dress has a light gray color and cuffs. And there's an ivory brooch at her throat, remnants of vanity. So we're, this this quote says a lot, and we can really imp- unpack it on multiple levels, especially when we think about ageism, the fact that this is an older woman and she's not necessarily a neue Frau or a flaneur, but in a way she is she is a part of the story because she is consuming the same advertisements, the same looking at the same department stores and fashion items that were available at the time. So it really connects all of that, or at least I think it does. I'd love to hear your feedback. Now back to the Flaneur and the Flaneuse or Neue Frau. Her story takes on many courses and paths in Weimar as we've seen, but her story with us focuses on fashion journalism because this is where she thrived. So she was not an object of of representation. She was an intellectual and an expression of the modern experience. She was emancipated, economically independent, with a profession and a career of her own, but she was also a female dandy, and in that sense, she really captivated the public's attention with her extravagant appearance. She, like the 19th century Parisian flaneur, roamed the city, its cafes, really being on the precipice of the latest fashions and their ephemerality. She was as much a part of the city as an observer of its tendencies. And in German culture of the 1920s, the flaneur was shorthand for the Berlin myth of representing the metropolis, cosmopolitan glamor and cultural vitality. And it was places like Ulstein Verlag that helped give visibility to the flaneur, which can be seen through their roster of women fashion journalists. Ulstein Verlag was really an extraordinary testament to the creation and the distribution of women's fashion at the time. It was the largest publishing empire in Germany, owning 19 newspapers and magazines, which really began in the 1890s when they offered subscriptions at low monthly rates. In 1905, they started by buying a small periodical for housewives from the publisher Friedrich Schirmer called Der Blatt der Hausfrau. Shortly after that, Ullstein acquired Illustri- Illustrierte Frauenzeitung, renamed Die Dame, in 1912. Its competitors were Elegante Welt from 1912 to 1962, *Stil* from 1912, 19- 20 to 1924 I believe. Die deutsche elite from 1924 to 1930, die neue linie 1929 to 1933 and finally german vogue from 1928 to 29. I'm going to have to fact check that date. But as you can see, they had a lot of competitors and one of their biggest competitors was El- Elegante Welt, which was a little more high end and niche. But you can also tell by these dates that a lot of these magazines didn't run quickly, didn't run very long. And that that can be really acc- accredited to the Aryanization of the German fashion industry and the Nazis coming to power. Since Die Dama was eventually Aryanized, they lived longer. Their line, their line lived longer. However, the publication just changed by the voice, the brand and the feel naturally because it was it turned into something completely propagandistic. Now, D. Dama was the answer to really capturing the attention, dreams and realities of many low and lower and middle class German women. But it was read by all classes. Now, one smart way they captured this broad market was by publishing fashion patterns. And it was really savvy. In Hermann Ulstein's own words, he said that, quote, fashion designs for women who made their own clothes did more good for all concerned than boring advice on how to remove stains or clean carpets teaching people how to look chic without spending large sums of money had a great power of attraction, end quote. And to this point, there was even a popular slogan used in in the cabaret that was, quote, in cabaret that was, quote, Be thrifty, my honey. Ulstein patterns save money. Another democratizing aspect of Ulstein was, unlike its politicized competitors and other magazines, it really treated all texts as saleable commodities and aggressively promoted modernity and really equalizing high with low culture. Ullstein was also a springboard for women writers and authors, some which included Nellie Sachs, Vicky Baum, and Irmgard Coyne. It's also important to note that between 1919 and 1926, most of the fashion layouts and cover pages were all created by female designers and artists like Erika Mohr, Marta Spakul, and Steffi Nathan. Even the daughter of modernist architect Peter Behrens, Petra Fiedler, joined the staff in 1923. Vicky Baum, the author of Grand Hotel, which was made into an Academy Award-winning movie in 1932, starring Greta Garbo and Joan Crawford, also worked at D-Dama. In her memoir, It Was All Quite Different, she shares a letter she wrote to a friend asking who was working at Ulstein asking if she could be hired as an apprentice and at this time in her career she'd already written, written books and many other pieces but the, here's what she said quote, my vague idea was that it could be, it could not be too hard to become a fashion designer Why not? Indeed, after all the things I had created out of those navy blue hand-me-downs. Somewhere, I had read that fashion designers earn good money, but I would have gratefully accepted any kind of job in the buzzing Ulstein beehive. Among other assets, I mentioned that I could type at fair speed, though in my own hit-and-miss two-finger method. On the downside, I confess, no shorthand, but I added that I I would gladly learn quickly if necessary. And in this quote, she continues in her memoir, she continues to talk about how she did get the position and this is how she prepared. Quote. I filled a large drawing pad with designs for all sorts of attire from alluring negligees to, to street to house and afternoon dresses to elaborate evening gowns. I added patterns for embroideries and fabrics, sofa pillows, lampshades, and for good measure, some furniture sketches I had discussed with the owner of a large furniture plant. So this was for her in prep for her, inter- for her interview. But it's interesting to note that while she is going into all this detail, designing specific occasion dresses from afternoon dresses to negligee to streetwear, not how we see it today um, for middle-class women of a good standing, there is this, uh, this concept that she is also part of this neue Frau or new woman who wouldn't necessarily have four different outfits a day if she was working in an office. This passage is a great account, also of her experience as an upper middle class woman who had the agency and opportunity to endeavor in jobs like journalism. Now, aside from Vicky Baum, three uh, there's a couple other more pr- other prominent fashion journalists that we're going to talk about, or just just how they interacted with the magazine. You had the editor um, Johanna Tal. Elsa and Helene Grund. They, among others like Lily Neger, the fashion editor, would be featured in the latest fashions, but also photographed going to parties, just like Andre Leon or Hamish Bowles at the season's most coveted events. The section Modenotizen, or Notes on Fashion, was one of the most important columns for, for Die Dame because it featured detailed descriptions and remarks about the latest trends, fashion accessories, and hairstyles. What Ullstein did, which was different from other publications, is that every Notizen was signed by its author, and some of its well-known writers for the section were Elsa Herzog, Johanna Tal, and Julie Ilia. So all, most of them were women writers. So even seeing their name and the authorship gives it even more credibility. And to put, But to put it simply, aside from covering of the moment fashion trends, how-to tips, Modernotizen provided a German woman's perspective on sartorial culture in Weimar-era Berlin and its varying moods and moments. And while it did remark on certain trends and how to wear them, there was a certain element of practicality that was that was ingrained in German fashion culture and just in the culture and the sartorial ethos of how they operated. Because, you you know, they are talking to middle-class, lower-middle-class women, but also just upper-middle-class women. And I think this balancing the sense of practicality with Parisian frivolity is a trend you can really trace back into the 20s all the way up into current-day, present-day German fashion journalism, I would surmise. Die Dama editors used Modernotizen to help define what is modern and relevant for the women's experience. And it was editors like Johanna Tal who would try and define the difference between what's fashionable versus what's modern for the everyday German woman. This is really fascinating. In a 1919 essay... Puppen und Frauen, Dolls and Women, Johanna Thal criticizes remarks that she has a doll's face by saying, This comparison is not modern because such faces are out of fashion for women and for dolls. Today, we women have our individuality, which describes the spirit of the independent woman and has begun to influence her appearance as well. Fashion in, in its many forms supports this strive for individuality. Every woman can dress differently and still be in fashion, end quote. So that's a pretty radical, not radical, but pretty innovative quote if you're thinking about things in terms of the teens and 20s, which I think as a culture we tend to fossilize that era as being so far away when really these feminist concepts or what we now call feminist concepts have been around f- for much longer. Another writer we need to talk about who really encapsulates the flaneur and the flaneur or Flaneuse, sorry, my, again, my French pronunciation is terrible, was Helene Grundt. Grundt wrote for both Die Dame and Frankfurter Zeitung. She was known for her short prose that not only re- remarked upon, you know, of the moment trends, but society as a whole. She also reports on the growing number of women who designed, sewed, and exhibited their own collections. She was a foreign fashion correspondent for for from 1926 to 1935. Grund was also in charge of the monthly supplement Für die Frau Monatliche Beilage für Mode und Gesellschaft or For Women, a Monthly Supplement on Fashion and Society. When she came to the magazine, she already had a successful literary career prior to this, and one of some, two of her popular essays, one, Pariser Bilderbogen" or Picture Book of Paris, and two, Aufatmen in Paris, Breathing in Paris, were regarded as writing in the style of the Flanner. And after the war, her literary World War II, her literary career continued. She is all she's most known for writing the first German translation of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. Now, here is a passage from a 1928 uh, Für die Frau called Vorzeitiger Abschiedsgruß, Abschiedgruß, or An Early Goodbye. Here she's criticizing the often tedious and pointless labor that a lot of models had to go through in these medium-sized, average Parisian fashion houses by saying, quote, "'Twice a day for two hours, the mannequin, puts on and takes off 30 or more dresses and all the attended all the attended accessories—belts, buttons, sashes, and ribbons. She's expected to keep her hairdo and her mood intact and to present every dress as unique.' She turns around in the studio of the designer and endures all kinds of looks and criticisms as if she were a dead object or deaf and dumb. While talking to a customer, the boss might swing an arm around her hips and call her Mon Petit. The chief dressmaker might scold her as if she's a schoolchild, spotting with every single glance, every defect, even an excess of powder or a smudged lipstick line, end quote. Helene Grundt's 1930 essay, Premiere der Wintermode, the premiere of winter fashions, Grund introduces the reader to one of the most coveted fashion shows. But aside from the presentation, what she's really commenting on are her colleagues or other fashion journalists. So let's, let's, let's visit this one. And mind you that this was written in 1930, so a lot of the a lot of this might seem a little tone deaf or a lot of these quotes I've been mentioning seem tone, tone deaf and problematic. So quote while we laugh, while we laugh the fat lady with the turquoise cape is too busy taking notes to be distracted she represents one of the most important New York newspapers and has to write a column every day particularly beautiful is the Creole woman in woman in the white evening dress with her shining black head she writes for, Hollywood, for a Hollywood studio and is interested in online photogenic clothes, mostly tea gowns. Two blonde Swedes are chatting, smoking, and drinking. If you've been around for a while, you can tell by the position of the correspondents in the room how their respective paper is ranked and what its circulation is. In the main room are reporters from Vogue, Femina, Harper's Bazaar, and Jardin de Mode. They are escorted by men in impeccable tailcoats and their place is next to the artists and fashion photographers, the textile manufacturers, the jewelry designers, and the friends of the house, end quote. She also goes on to talk about the real-life perspective of what it's like working as a fashion reporter. Quote, In the course of two weeks, the conscientious fashion journalist looks at two or three collections per day, in the morning, in the afternoon, and at night, and that takes a total of 3,500 models. These numbers give you an idea of the sifting process that takes place before the slogans are coined and the big hits are determined for the future course of fashion, end quote. And I think this is a good quote to, and good place to stop and really reflect on the sheer influence on, of many female fashion journalists and what we, we, what we would consider today as feminist undertones. And also the fact that pre-COVID times, not much has changed in terms of the, the nonstop chaotic rhythm of fashion, except we've added more collections and there's fast fashion now. But it's it's a good perspective to look at nonetheless. I'd also like you to challenge yourself into thinking about this a little bit more and looking looking at the systems or structures that were in place to really give these these women a sense of visibility, primarily Ulstein Verlag and their genius ideas of or ingenious concept of selling fashion patterns as well as a really democratic and practical way of selling dreams of fashion today i'd like to thank my sources primarily mila geneva's women in weimar fashion and janet ward's weimar surfaces which i had mentioned earlier on the next episode we'll continue talking about mass consumerism looking at visual merchandising as a fanciful tableau for shopping, and prominent Berlin department stores and designers of Weimar. Thank you so much for listening, danke, and I will see you in two weeks. Auf Wiedersehen!